0: For the Los Angeles Review of Books, I'm Colin Marshall coming to you from the West Hollywood Library today where I'm speaking with Sean Wilsey. He's the author of a new collection called More Curious, but also the memoir, Oh, the Glory of it All. And he's the co-editor of two books, uh, State by State, A Panoramic Portrait of America, and The Thinking Fan's Guide to the World Cup. So as you can probably already tell, this man's writing covers a lot of different subjects. We're going to try to tie most of them together today. Maybe with... I don't think this can tie them all together, but tell me about the source of your fixation on uh, red—the Red Roof Inn mascot. <laughs> oh my God!
1: I love that you're asking me that question. It's also really funny that we're talking from a library because I was like, "Wait, you're not allowed to talk in a library." Huh. But whatever. In the uh, waiting room of the coffee shop. Yeah, you're I know. It's, it's okay. Don't if you were nervous about that. <laughs> um, I mean, that's actually like the moment that. I think as a writer, you're always trying to advance whatever you're doing without losing track of whatever makes you... Readable insofar as you have been previously. Like, I, I tend to feel betrayed by writers who suddenly just abandon what I loved them doing before and just... An example of that would be what? Oh, I feel like John Irving is somebody that did that. Um, at least for me. I don't know that other people would agree, but I was a huge fan of The Hotel New Hampshire and The World According to Garb. And then suddenly, I was like, what the fuck is this shit? What is the Cider House rules? I hate this. And I feel like he... It was because he was trying to stretch himself probably and I just didn't like the way it turned out. But that, that character Red, who was the mascot for the Red Roof Inn, presented me with this opportunity as a non-fiction writer to incorporate like a new trick into my repertory. Cause I was like, you know, I can use this guy. He got into my head because you check into a Red Roof Inn, and or you did like very. Brief- in 2005 when you checked t- in. 2002. Oh, 2002, and like he got, he basically got like erased from the corporate history of Red Roof Inn because he was he was invented by this guy. I want to give full credit to this guy, Rob Baggett, who is uh, an ad man at McCann Erickson, and kind of a cool guy. And in a weird way, that I think like a lot of creative people imagine that they might be able to go into advertising or some other branch of creativity that also, like, pays you well. I always
0: think they can do it. If it comes down to it, I can make a red. Sure. <laughs> yeah, totally. But, like, he, he did actually put a lot of kind of soul and, like, curiosity and weirdness
1: into this character and to such a degree that the red roof was like, whoa, this is going too far. But it, it like, you know, it did, he did all these national spots. Like, Baggett wrote all the dialogue. Um... John Goodman <laughs> performed the character and so you check into the red roof and there'd be like a big cardboard red when you checked in who was just bizarre looking with this red hair sticking straight up and was like ironic and sarcastic about how cheap you were to be staying there. Um, this kind of smug, knowing expression yeah. on his
0: fix to there, the only expression he had.
1: Yeah. exactly. like, well, there was a CGI version of him that when you turn on the TV in your room would sort of talk to you about how cool and and countercultural you were to be staying at the Red Roof Inn. And, and I was like, dang, I'm going to take this guy along with me on the road and just like allow him to react to things (laughs) and he just started to grow in my head as this character and he was able to say all the kind of, I mean it's funny because I'm working on a piece, potentially working on a piece for Vanity Fair about CB radio use in America and how I just like the marginality. There's going be
0: an interesting crowd left.
1: Well, it's like I just like the marginalia of America and what thing, it's like comment boards and the things that people say there. And you're like, maybe the truth comes out in those places. And so CB is an example of people just say the most outrageous, uncensored shit that you wouldn't believe. And so I was, I felt like Red was kind of my version of that, and I could allow him to just say and think things. He became your id. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, thank you. I don't even know what that is, but now that you've said Sounds it... that's
0: good enough. I'm not sure I could explain it myself, but Red was your id. But I think you used it correctly. <laughs> yes. Red, the Red of the Red Roof Inn, the short-lived mascot, became your id, and that was a touch that made me fascinated by the style of writing you were doing in that piece, where you're driving across... Almost across the Texas yes. to New York, but that West Texas. West, West Texas. That's true. We have to make a distinction. Texas has some size to it. Yeah. Yes, it wasn't the eastern border. This was West Texas to New York. You stop at the Red Roof Inn. You see red. Red becomes your id. But also, you see red, and there's an aside in the text where you you describe seeing this cutout of red, and then you quote the actual this designer of red yeah. who was saying, who who said the note he got back from Red Roof was there's a fine line between quirkiness and, and irreverence. And yeah. And that's you drop it right in. It's really yeah. quick. But usually a writer doesn't go to the point where they talk to the designer of Red. I mean, did you know like I gotta get the guy who made this character?
1: I mean, that's like what I like to do, and I just like to go as deep into something as you can get, and sometimes you go down a dead end, and you're like, well, that was a huge waste of my time trying to track this guy down, and I'm always trying to do that, and a lot of them just never make it into the piece. I got really obsessed with names, and some of that came out in this piece, like Hernando de Soto. Um I was like, what does that name actually mean? And it's like Cabeza de Vaca. Everybody knows what that means. Um, head of a cow. But Hernando de Soto means bold voyager of the thicket. And I'm like, does that have any significance? Does that have some bearing? Is like destiny in a name? And I think that can get a little, a little kind of twee if you screw it up. And I'm always like kind of on my guard to make sure that I'm not just being cute or eccentric and wasting the reader's time. But like in the case of Red, I feel like I got great stuff out of that designer. And he had this weird kind of paternal relationship to the character. And one of the subtexts of that piece is like my relationship with my dad. And it just, those two things dovetailed in this way that I felt like you know, it made me feel good about about like what all the work and how it had like come together.
0: That that piece, you're driving across much of America, and it, it the piece also taps into your interest in sort of you say the marginalia of America, but the, yeah. a, the, if this isn't too broad, the nature of America as well. I mean, is it, it's in that piece, right, that you cite uh, George W. S. Trow, is yeah. that the fellow, where the author of the context of no context, and what what. What was resonant about, he's not a guy people talk about much anymore, but what, what is resonant about what he thought about America to you still? Well, he just figured the whole place out. <laughs> he, his, his observations still stand today? Completely. I mean, some of the things he
1: say, he said are so profound that I, I feel like maybe Tro's flaw as a writer was that he had difficulty couching his observations in a readable piece of narrative prose. So, I mean, if you pick up within the context of no context, you're definitely an intellectual badass if you could make your way through it.
0: I remember reading about him. He said one of his signatures was incomprehensibly subtle talk of the town pieces in in the New (laughs) Yorker.
1: Yeah. well that's what he would do he was a talk of the town writer it's so funny his evolution as a writer because I mean the talk of the town or talk about twee it really was at it's worst just this unbearable thing where nobody could write in the first person it was all written in the plural we <laughs> And it was it was like too freaking cute, you know. But Tro was really good at, at evo- evoking a scene, and he was good at that length, you know. Like talk of the town pieces tend to fall in at like a thousand words or less, and some of his work, like I guess he's most famous for a profile of the Atlantic Records president, um, whose name I'm just going to mispronounce Ahmed. Yeah, the one who died recently,
0: something like that.
1: I think he did die recently, yeah. So he wrote this thing in The New Yorker that was a profile of him that has, like, amazingly entertaining scenes of Mick Jagger kicking a limo driver out of a limo and driving it around Manhattan and, and like, Diana Vreeland saying things like, oh, when Mick has had a good night's sleep, he is the most handsome man in New York. Your life, but he's never had a good night's sleep. Yeah, that's just purely theoretical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Total, total theory is abstract thinking. <laughs> but Troy was a really good fly on the wall. And then he was really good at taking these things and thinking so deeply about them. But he was also kind of a recluse and a, and a crazy person, and he ended up dying alone in Naples. in Circumstances that I've never fully—I mean, nobody's ever really explained what happened. Maybe nobody knows what happened, you know. Natural causes, sure. Hell yeah, (laughs) I know. I mean, and he was gay and not out. um, So like a troubled, troubled guy. But like I don't know anybody that thinks really deeply. I think it's hard to maintain the sense of uh, optimism or whatever you might need to like kind of stay alive when you think really hard about stuff because it's a screwed-up world. And he, but he was able to really pull away a lot of veils behind things. And uh, I, I think he's just one of the best writers.
0: For those who haven't read his observations on America, and his, his most famous observations, I mean, what did he understand? He understood that America had two levels, essentially. Celebrity, right. and then the individual, and there was nothing in between, and only celebrities could be fulfilled because they only they lived at both levels. How do you interpret that?
1: Well, it was like the idea of the public life and the private life, and that I think this is a very isolating country. And if you're... It's like there are very few traditions here. There's very little upon which you can build community here. And I think that's what makes us so creative and so powerful and so kind of world-dominating. Um, and yet they were like a really lonely people and his his thesis that that you basically just stated was that the only people that have a private life and I actually don't think this is even true anymore um but it was true recently and I guess it's true in certain circumstances what he described as, as, he described them as grids, like the tiny grid of you and me and baby, and then the big grid of 300 million or however many the population is now. It was 200 million for him, now we're well over 300 million,
0: so who knows what he would make of that.
1: Right. And so television was this thing that he was obsessed with that kind of pulled those grids together. And we all watched TV. And I guess the Internet would be the replacement for TV. The you know, television now.
0: thing seems quaint now. So many writers just got the vapors about this effect of television. But the Internet, is it better? Is it worse? I don't know. I don't know either. It's I mean, unity in a way. It's a uni-
1: exactly. It's like TV question. wasn't well he was obsessed with the idea of tv as being kind of a sadistic medium that that impersonated the, the warmth of a child, uh, but that, that actually didn't like nurture you or give you anything. Uh, and, and so there was that idea and then there's the idea that people who live in that world of celebrity and who also have their own lives, they're the only complete people. And then he took it one step further and he's like, but the only real celebrities are products. Yes. And he said, there's nothing as loved in this country as
0: Coca-Cola. <laughs>
1: You know, that's, so it's like Cola is the only It's fulfilled happy. entity. That's right, exactly.
0: One of the other most sort of Troian pieces in your new collection, more curious, is about skateboarding, I think, about Thrasher magazine and the individual skateboarder. That, in a way, is the same phenomenon, right? You have the giant grid of Thrasher magazine. That's a good point. And you have the individual skateboarder who savors aloneness, right? Maybe Thrasher is replaced by the world of Tony Hawk now. Right. I know, but is, this, is the same dynamic at play? Yeah,
1: actually, I think, I think it is. I mean, I think skaters are, they're like a really redemptive force in that like the best skate places are always kind of the saddest places. <laughs> it's like you can't skate in nature. Urban wastelands. Yeah, urban wastelands. But even like not even like the poetic urban wastelands. Like because like those are all going to be kind of cracked and and they'll have this kind of beauty to them. Like you gotta like actually uh, this little atrium that we're looking at here at the library is slightly skatable. Like you know it's just kind of antiseptic, but it looks like they did a really good job paving it so you could roll around there really nicely and sometimes there'll be like literally no one here. And you'll find all these little edges to kind of grind on and things to, like, launch off of. And I think it's actually the exact same idea as what Tro was talking about.
0: Do you find you're still, wherever you go, eyeing up places in terms of their skateability? I am now, like,
1: right this second. I'm actually I maybe going to rescind my opinion that this would be a good skate
0: spot because there's, like, there's a lot of... They've really sort of smoothed it out in a way that you're it's like... It's less than 10 years old, uh, this place, so there's that. There's this, it's a bit too new, in a way, to be a good skating arena. Oh, no, actually, now I'm seeing some really nice stuff. It's pretty skatable. I was I mean, thinking th- about that rail, the rail that goes down the staircase. I mean, there's, it's broken, it's in two segments, but it's a fairly long staircase, so you could go down that rail if you yeah. could get up on it.
1: I cannot get up on it. <laughs> <laughs> could you ever? No, I was never ever able to do a rail slide that 's a feat of athleticism that was totally beyond me. I was more like I was kind of a flow skater and i was a, I was good at slides and I was good at um a trick that's like nobody even does anymore called the boneless. It wasn't much of an ollier, but a boneless is where you roll and you you suddenly simultaneously like take one of your feet off the board and grab the board with the other hand and then you boost with that foot. Like ideally off something or over something or down some stairs. And uh that was like good enough for me. You know, it felt really good. Like over overly I mean I feel like there's a this goes back to tro. Like a lot of these tricks are now done. They're so hard, and the potential for injury is so high. But man, you get a good video of it and you can like move a lot of product and your reputation is gonna soar as like a pro. I don't know that many like just kids. Who aren't looking to make it into some kind of career that can, like, do a rail slide on a sick rail like that one that we're looking at, you know? Because if you wipe out, dude, it's like body cast. It's like broken pelvis.
0: That's part of the appeal, though. What happens if I wipe out?
1: Well, the danger is part of the appeal. But there's, like, there's gradations of danger that are more or less tolerable. I mean, I chipped one of my teeth when I was a skater and had this nice, like, kind of snaggle-tooth thing going on. And that was, like, <laughs> that was that was great. Badge of honor. It was a badge of honor, but that was plenty for me. And I always had a lot of, like, skin, knees, and, and road rashes. But, man, when it gets to the point where you're, like, seriously... I mean, Rodney Mullen is an example of... I don't think Rodney Mullen is actually doing things that are truly, you know, courting death-style skating, but he's certainly, like... I probably still the most technically proficient skater in his late 40s working now. And he has hurt himself so badly to the point where he had to start... The doctors couldn't help him, and he he developed this routine that he would do
0: where he would... I still don't quite understand what he was doing. (laughs) It's really
1: difficult to picture it, I know. Where he would basically... He had all this scar tissue in his legs, and it could not be surgically removed. And so he realized, through... Trial and error that you could kind of rip it out by contorting your body in certain ways, where the scar tissue would suddenly be torn, and then it would be like re-metabolized and it would disappear from your system, and you'd basically like, you know, you'd be like urinating it out of you. And he, I know, I mean, it literally doesn't it just sound like something that some sect of Buddhism would get involved in. And so he would take his leg and he would put it in the wheel well of his car, and his range of motion was really limited because of the scar tissue, and he would kind of flex on it, and suddenly it would go rip. And and he would like tears and burst out of his eyes <laughs> I know but so I don't know if that was a clear explanation but
0: yeah no I can it's vivid okay. I think I don't want to picture it that's part of it
1: <sighs> yeah I mean it's so extreme
0: so this piece on skating, you know, yeah. it, it, as I say, it deals a lot with Thrasher magazine, you know, the yeah. premier organ of skating journalism, probably still today. Is is it still, is it still the go-to print magazine for skaters? I don't know. I don't like it as much as I used to. It
1: used to have this, like, kind of lovely homemade feeling to it. And it, you just felt like it there was, like, was released. Really, I mean, it was always very male-centric, so it felt like it was speaking to kind of a brotherhood of skaters. And it still has that feeling. Um, but maybe it just doesn't, you know, I feel like it's intellectual aspirations have been kind of left behind. And there are some writers in there who do write really well and are really thoughtful and funny, but it's, like, they don't put, a, like, a great deal of, of emphasis on thoughtful writing. It's, it's way more about photos. And then, like, I mean, there just certain it used to be certain people who worked for it who had like, a real spirit and a real voice. Um, this guy, Mofo, who was one of their... He wrote their cooking column. He's I'm like... surprised it existed ever. It was, like, shocking that they had a
0: freaking recipe column in a skater magazine. And it was so fun. Like, Scarfables or something? What was this, the name of this section about Scarfing material.
1: And uh, it was inspired. It was really good. And it was just like such a welcome to the to the magazine. It was just like a it was like a riskier venture before. I think they've kind of got their formula dialed in, and I'm sure they feel slightly as all pu- you know print publications do like worried about like failing and so now they've got this thing that works but i don't know i mean I'm kind of speaking almost theoretically i haven't i haven't really seriously looked at Thresher since like maybe i don't know two thousand nine or something
0: i mean it's it's one of these not pulling back the curtain but Looking deeper moments that, that intrigues me in the writing you do, and more curious because it's like asking the designer of Red, Red. what was the process of designing Red? You ask, I mean, you talk to the you talk to the editor who was, who was doing Thrasher at that time, right? Who was, who was writing this cooking section. You, you actually hear... Do you, you talk to him or do you just quote him? No. In any case, you hear
1: from Let's him. quote him, yeah. I, I quote him pretty extensively, though. Which is as good as having
0: talked to him for the reader. I mean, yeah. uh, for you, you probably want to talk to him still.
1: Well, none of that stuff exists online. Like, I had to find all that stuff, like, in libraries. Thrasher, they keep it in the library. It might even be here. And they cut, they cut the cooking column in the early 90s. So really, all that stuff came out of the '80s, and uh, but he's still around. He's a photographer and a writer, and I found like a listing that he'd put on some job search website where you know, he like he needs work.
0: Uh, I need to see my kids in Phoenix. Anybody need a, phot- a photographer in Phoenix? Was That's that...
1: right. That's exactly what he said.
0: I know. In a way, it's you would say this is like you, you see your idols fall in that moment, but he was already. F- being fallen was his thing in the first place, right? Every skater wants to be fallen in some way.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't think the takeaway from that is to like feel sorry for him, because yeah. I think he... He seems to have led a very full and fulfilling life, and he still seems to. I mean, those are like, I don't know, these are like the holy people of our country, in a funny way. Like, I really think of him as like kind of a spiritual guide or something. Him and Nautis, Copas, who was this insane skater where you're like, this guy is a better skater. And like, just had this like inner light um, that, like, came through that than, like, anybody else, you know? And he was kind of the least corporatized of them all. I mean, I think he actually lives in L.A. So, because somebody came to this reading I did last night at Family Books and said, oh, I'm friends with Nottis, so I'm bringing him this book. And I was like, I got, like, so excited. Is he here? <laughs> he wasn't there. And I think he was like, Nottis doesn't read that much. <laughs> <laughs> of course he doesn't. I know. I know. I think he still surfs or something. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, this sense of the, the elements of America you explore in the book, I mean, there's one there's one essay, I, maybe it's in just in one, maybe it's in more than one, where you are volunteering at this counseling center after 9-11 because yeah. you lived in New York when where? 9-11 happened. And it brought home another element of the, maybe the disconnection of America to me. In the sense that when 9 11 happened, I was living not in New York but in Seattle, about as far as you get from New York. And I remember it was just, it was kind of hard to envision what was going on over in New York, even though you had the images. I mean, when I heard it on the radio first, I imagined like the Wright Brothers plane crashing into the towers. Like, I didn't think it was consequential at first. And then I was like, oh, wait, actual planes? But everybody had this who was far from New York. But then I noticed okay, New York. Things are not normal in New York right now. Of course, you're not going into work in New York. But then I noticed people in Seattle who were doing like web comics, would their site would go dark and say because of 9/11, we're not running a comic today. And I was I'd be like, "Interesting. Are you really do you really feel that connected to New, to New York right now? Yeah. Do you normally feel that connected to New York?" Because I mean, I I'll, I'll freely admit, people don't really talk about now they do more. At the time, it was sort of not okay to say that was a normal day for you, no matter where you lived in America. It was kind of a normal day for me. I didn't I didn't do anything differently. You're like
1: the only person
0: cuz it was like I feel like it was like a day of reckoning. Right. And I was also 16, so I mean I wasn't oh, like That's a whole
1: other situation. Yeah, of course.
0: I mean I didn't think it was good and I didn't think there wasn't there weren't dead people over there but I was also like I know I'm far from this in every dimension.
1: Well, I think there was a lot of fear born out of that that you're like what the hell is going to happen next, you know. They must have like a phase 2. And but your point is really interesting because in fact, this country is so big that it's bizarre if it were not for just, like, our communications network, then anybody in Seattle would even know what had happened in New York, you know? I only know about it from the media.
0: Only, like, I've never encountered anything real from that. Sure, I mean, these, like, massive disasters... That we have. That ha- I'll underscore. I do believe it happened. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I just have never encountered it in a non-mediated way.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I realized, along with uh, probably at least a couple of million other people, by just looking up and seeing it when I was walking my dog, and I had been in New York when uh, they bombed the Trade Center in '93. I think it was '92 or '93. And immediately, I was like, "Oh fuck, terrorists!" And I think there had been this like. Sense of, like, you know, the other shoe's going to drop eventually. Two towers, two attacks. Like, it was, it was, it, it felt like, I'm literally going to misuse the, I Manifest Destiny. Is that even what that means? But it means something. I heard in history class.
0: I, like I like the idea of the reusing a few terms. They were like, yeah. does that mean anything? Fifty-four forty, 40 or fight. <laughs> 23 Skidoo. Exactly. I know what that means, actually. I can define that for you. Um, for listeners who don't know, what does 23 Skidoo mean? This is a piece of Americana. I
1: learned this from Danny Meyer, who I wrote about in this book as well. It, it Apparently there's, and there still is, there's kind of like a wind tunnel situation on 23rd Street in Manhattan, and it used to blow up women's skirts all the time. And so 23 Skidoo comes from, like, that's what you'd say with, like, a lady's skirt got blown up on 23rd Street. In one life. of the
0: few people under 80 who knows Isn't that
1: funny? I know. And so, uh... But to sort of go back to the 9-11 thing for a second, I feel like... It... It just, like, it unlocked... I remember there was... That first week was this weird week where... It felt like... And I did that volunteering in that first week. And it was for... Cantor Fitzgerald, this company that had lost, like, almost all of its employees in the attack. And... That first week felt like it, the definition of that event and its significance was up for grabs. Mm-hmm. And in a funny way, if it had been interpreted in another way and our response had been other than what it was, uh, the whole course of history could have been completely different. And there was there could have been a version of our response that would have been like, we're not going to make such a big deal out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's almost ridiculous to imagine that as a response. But... Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's like we're a big country and this happened in New York. It's not inconceivable that there could have been a more regionalistic take on it Um, and then a more kind of surgical response to it and rather than basically upending the government and structure of like a whole region, you know, being the Middle East and then like kind of reconceiving our own identity as a nation after that, which is I think what happened. So, you know... People are going to be studying this event for like our whole lives. And it's going to always be considered a like before or after kind of thing mm-hmm. for this country. And it's probably going to be declared as like when our decline officially began. No, I'm sure it will be. You know, it's like it seems inevitable. But
0: future historians are looking at this. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Like that was when American power, uh, became like irretrievable.
0: There's a question underlying a lot of what you write about America, and more curious, uh, you know, which America are you in at any given time or place? You know, people talk about two Americas. There seem to be many more than two Americas, uh, depending on how many dimensions you want to layer on to this. But there's an artifact of a different America you write about, sort of past America, NASA. Um, yeah. And it reminded me of, I think it's, I remember, I don't know, maybe this was quite a while ago now, but conversations I would have with friends who were very space-inclined as kids, as kids tend to be, and they would say, you know, I'm so disappointed that NASA is, doesn't seem to be doing that much anymore. And to me, the, when I first heard that, it struck me as, they might, they might as well have said, why haven't we bombed the Riskies yet? It's It's sort of like, wait, but no, you don't, that's not going on. Like, oh, and then I... I realized that I had, my mind had put together the sort of Cold War and NASA as so inseparable that I, n- I hadn't thought to extricate them. And you do that a bit in the book, right?
1: Right. Well, it is like a, it, it evokes powerful nostalgia, NASA. And yet it still wants to do stuff. And there is still valuable stuff that it could do. But it's totally strangled economically and, and yet the public imagination is like really difficult to fire up around NASA. Whereas if you actually talk to anybody, it's almost like the, the best conversation starter ever. You can just go up to anybody and be like, NASA. And they're gonna actually like have thoughts and
0: opinions and, and it's really difficult to Because it stands for something people think about related to America a lot. I think it it also is
1: what it is. I mean, most things are kind of pretending to be something, or you're like, well, what is this really? Or, there are secrets here, or we're hiding something, or that person can't really be that way, both in public and in private. We assume that. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty valid assumption. But NASA is, like, completely transparent. Um, their goal genuinely is just, like, exploration and furthering science. And they feel like an arts movement or something that is part of the federal government. And and yet they did benefit massively from our our, like, you know, race with the Russians. You know, if it hadn't been for that, if it hadn't been for, like, Kennedy's... Um, determination to actually, you know, overcome and like get past Sputnik and like beat them—it never would have happened. Uh, it was like because so much money. I can't remember the exact figure, but four point four percent of the budget, oh, which well is pretty then, high. Do you have a really good memory? Because um, yeah, and that's like freaking a lot of money. And you could get a lot done with that. And I think a lot of people still say, and I th- maybe thought this when I started working on the article, like, oh well, look what could you did that do? Like, shouldn't you spend that money? Like, you know housing people and, and, you know, solving poverty or curing some disease. There's cracks in the sidewalks. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Patch those cracks. Yeah. But I actually believe that, that sort of dreaming and aspiring and mystery, like real mystery is like super valuable. And, and dedicating ourselves to those things has repercussions that are really positive. And I, so I just ended up coming into NASA so open-minded and and still having my mind blown and leaving writing that article just feeling like man it's this huge source of hope um, and I hope that like I mean and I was really disappointed that like Obama whose whole deal was hope you know just didn't like he just <laughs> shut their asses down you know yes there, there,
0: there is that I mean By pure coincidence, when I read your essays on NASA, the same day, that evening, I happened to watch um, this movie, The Astronaut Farmer. Have you heard of this movie? The Astronaut Farmer is from a few years back. It's about a farmer who builds a rocket. He's he's got a thwarted thwarted astronaut. It's fake. I mean, it's totally implausible, but it's... Billy Bob Thornton plays a Texas farmer, isn't? and he, he, he was going to be an astronaut, but his dad died, so he had to uh, drop out of the program, but in compensation, he's been just building this rocket in his barn over the years, and he uses it to launch himself into space. He's literally an astronaut farmer, and it's very much a story. He has a few monologues where he's explaining himself to an- angry feds and whatnot, and he's so and there used to be an America where in 1960 they could launch the space program beyond the moon by 1969. You know? right. We used to have dreams in America. The subtext is just right up there yeah. in this movie. It's, it's sort of a deliberately hokey movie, but interesting in its commentary on the sense that America, somewhere along, along the line, forgot to give people a reason to live. You know, does that make sense to you?
1: I couldn't say it better. That's, like, exactly right. NASA did that. I mean, now it's just everything has to have some kind of practical justification. And NASA was ridiculously impractical. We had no, you know, idea that we were going to find something particularly helpful or useful on the moon.
0: We didn't start out saying, this might get us GPS units in the future, so let's
1: do it. we, We did not think any of that. And then, of course, there's loads of people that don't even... I think it's, like, the saddest thing ever to just actually not even believe that it happened.
0: Yeah, what is the story with that? I mean, we alluded to, before that, 9-11 conspiracy theories. You know, there's people who believe 9-11 didn't happen or didn't happen the way we thought. Also, moon landing conspiracy theories. But what's... It's less interesting what leads them to believe that than at their core why they need that to be true. I mean, I can't quite figure that out. Oh no, I'm thinking the same
1: thing. I really don't know what the answer is to that question.
0: What's unacceptable about a world where America landed on the moon to them? Something is fundamentally, they can't, that doesn't align with their world. I can understand the 9 11 thing to think. I don't want to live in a world where an outside terrorist can crash a plane. I would prefer if the U.S. government did it themselves as, a, as an elaborate distraction. But the moon yeah. landing—I don't quite understand why they can't live in that world.
1: Well, I think there's a type of personality that, uh, for the 9/11 thing, that like you know basically really would would maybe like to like cheat on their taxes and try, you know just. Justify a lot of bad behavior. I think these are all bad people that think these things, and that therefore, if they've been just like duped and hoodwinked by their government, they're like, well, what do I owe that government? Oh,
0: you know, it's a way to be like, yeah, hey, what have you done for me? You've, you've been you've been hoodwinking you've us all for
1: hundreds of years. Exactly. I don't know why I'm giving that person a Southern accent. It could just, be from any region. It could be from Seattle. Probably yes, would be from probably Seattle. They're from Seattle. But but then it's like the moonlight the moon landing. I mean, I, I do think that. I mean, and I felt this way too as a writer. I was like, "Good fucking god!" Like, <laughs> I could never even do like fairly rudimentary kind of late high school math, and like the the calculations required for like rendezvous. You know, rendezvous being like when the lunar module leaves the moon and like has to reconnect with the freaking command module. You're just like, I'm. I am in aww, you know, and they all did it with basically like, you know, clockwork, <laughs> you know, Slide rules and, whatnot. and it's badass. And I think that we're like possibly living in a, in a society where even though it's so much more competitive, maybe than ever, we just aren't taught things like really deep knowledge is less and less present. And I think it's like really intimidating to imagine that People used to be able to do those things, and so maybe it's just easier to be like, "Yeah, they just faked it." <laughs> Go Southern again. It's yeah, just like it's just a studio. You can see the can- you can see the the microphone in some of those shots. <laughs> that
0: flag ain't flapping. Stanley Kubrick got hired for it. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but you know, like Buzz Aldrin, totally isn't he one of the directors that they like think did it? He's um, the main the main guy who's thrown up as like a yeah. He probably look at 2001. Same effects.
1: What? A, what? A, what a,
0: Dumbasses. <laughs> And it's like, you've talked to
1: anybody at NASA about this stuff, and you go in and see all the stuff, like, the reality of it all becomes, like, undeniable. Although, I mean, it's also, like, it's very frightening, um, space. And when you actually start to contemplate it, you know, you realize how good we have it down here, with, like, an atmosphere to breathe, and, like, shit that grows, and, and up there, I mean, it's, like, the ultimate, whatever. I think it, who was the guy that was in the command module, since you have an amazing memory, um, I've, no, I, wish, I wish I could get the all, name right off the 11, because it, it, was, it was obviously Aldrin and Armstrong who went down. Collins. Uh, he stayed in the command module, and he got he got nicknamed the loneliest man, like, whatever, in history or in the world, because he was
0: just up there alone. you on the dark
1: side of the moon.
0: It's illustrative that we didn't have his name right away, I think. Isn't it? Yes.
1: Oh, my God. I don't know. I mean, I think it, like, whatever. It definitely makes you think about uncomfortable stuff, if you really think about it. It's not just like, what? I'm sitting on a rocket. I'm going up in space. It's like loneliness and isolation and and death and and like the fact that like all the you know our planet has like an expiration date. You know and like Tom Wolfe, who obviously wrote the right stuff, but he wrote a really kind of interesting op-ed a couple of years ago. I guess it was on the anniversary of Apollo 11. He was just like you know the only thing. The only way if we think humanity is worth keeping, uh, to go is like we actually have to explore space. Like we have to figure out how to get off this planet eventually. And he's right. But that's the kind of really, really long-term thinking that we just seem incapable of now.
0: When, when, when or why did that sort of burn out?
1: I only can think of jokes
0: to make in response, <laughs> I'm just trying to think of a real answer. <laughs> I don't know, man. But that's, well, that's the question nobody has an answer to. Is everybody seems to be asking it. Everybody yeah. I talk to is like, you know, yeah. When did America give up? Like, well, it's, I mean, no one really knows. But
1: it's fun to arrive at an imponderable. You know, like that's what makes that's. I mean, that's this kind of stuff that I find really interesting. It's like you don't know, want to just have like some quick, easy answer for everything. And I think people feel like you know, to assert to be like, yeah, i got to be, like, ready with my answer. Like, fuck knows. Um, and that's, like, a good thing to wonder about. Like, that's what we should be doing. Well, we
0: should have noticed when the most powerful country in the world packed it in, right? I mean, that's you it's hard to hide that. I know.
1: <laughs> I know. It's not too late. We could bring it back. Yeah. Hillary, she could be all about NASA if she yes. gets elected.
0: But this reminds me of the talk, like, a lot of people around my age bitch and moan that they don't have the economy that somebody who graduated high school in 1969 had, and it's sort of like, well, why? Did, why did that was a those post post war decades were not a long moment in history? Why did we expect? Oh, this is normal now. Every generation till the heat death of the universe will have this. You know, sort of like America with its position as number one. Why did we think? Well, this is going to last forever.
1: Totally. I mean, I, I, you know, my generation, I'm like generation X. We're like this tiny kind of in between generation. No one will remember us. But in the 90s, you know, when I like was getting out of college, there was just like an employment wasteland. You know, there was like nothing at all. And, you know, I, and I actually think that this was kind of a valuable moment in America. I think that the early 90s are, are like a historically fascinating time that haven't been like, really assessed yet and where like the country could have gone in like some crazy different direction. Like we had already like beaten the Russians and all the shit that we're obsessed with now like wasn't going on. There was no internet. There was no terrorism to speak of. Um, I mean there were little kind of glimpses of it here and there with like Lockerbie. Um but I remember having a group of friends in San Francisco who were just shockingly unmotivated. And it didn't mean that they were caricatures of Generation X in San Francisco. Well, right. Of course, like we all got labeled slackers and everything else. But like, there was something kind of interesting in that. Where like, I mean, they really seemed to actually have renounced ambition. And I had a lot of ambition, so I left San Francisco and went to New York. And like,
0: still happens to San Francisco.
1: Yeah, but now San Francisco is something else, and it's unimaginable. Although I actually, I really wanted this. Is this was like my favorite moment of this trip. I've been in LA for like five days now, or longer, like a week. And I, um, I got a massage. And I have this great, like, massage therapist who is, uh, kind of like a slightly, like, punk rock, kind of Japanese, kind of like indie woman. She's, like, my age. And, and she, uh, After the massage, we've been talking about cats, and she's like, "Oh, you want to like come see these cats? I've got these cool new cats." And her husband and and one of his friends were in the living room, and the friend had like a really long beard and was like an older guy, and they were just chilling, you know. They weren't doing anything. I think they'd been like maybe there could have been some recreational drug use involved, and we started talking, and. I promise you I'm going to land this story for you. You can always cut this so far, story. This is
0: like, yeah, this is, a, this is a decent Los Angeles experience. It sounds normal to me. There's a
1: really... There's a, but okay, so I we were talking about Marfa, where I have lived up until very recently. And I said, yeah, it's a great place. You know, there's a lot of musicians go there. You guys should think about, like... Because they were musicians going and checking it out. And just make sure that if you have any substances with you, don't have them when you go through the Border Patrol checkpoint. And so the massage therapist's husband said, yeah... I uh, remember Mick Jack- or no, Keith Richards got into trouble that way up in Canada. And the, dr- the judge, fortunately, was really kind and just let him play a benefit concert. <laughs> and the other guy with the beard just goes, Man, don't you wish you could just play a little music and get out of all your legal troubles that way? <laughs> and I was like, Dude, this is it. And I turned up and I was like, Do you realize that this is an edited out of Big Lebowski scene? Yeah, it's, and and like, the movie is a documentary. Totally. And Well, it also was the early 90s, you know? And that energy, kind of like, it had more to it than anybody thought at the time. It was really easy to, like, laugh about it. And, like, I don't know, I think The Big Lebowski is a comedy, but is it? <laughs> there, there's an imponderable for you. Oh
0: my God. You know, you mentioned Marfa, Texas, this other remote place, albeit not as remote as, you know, the moon, but it's a, a place, as you say, you've lived. And people are hearing more about Marfa these days. What is Marfa?
1: Well, I mean, I guess geographically, it's, it is very remote. It's about 200 miles from El Paso to in the Big Bend, which is where Texas kind of follows the Rio Grande and curves around. And so Marfa is sort of tucked into this large bend in the Rio Grande. So it's surrounded by Mexico on three sides. And then if you go north, uh, you're in New Mexico. So it's this like section of Texas where very few people live and that not that many people until recently knew much about. Uh, very beautiful, incredible vistas. If you like looking at landscape, it is a great place to go because you can just see what the earth actually looks like without anything in the way, building-wise, tree-wise. The
0: curvature just stretches yeah. out in front of you.
1: And sometimes when you have like those nights where there's like a big full moon, you're just like, whoa! You you literally it looks like you could just step right onto it, like it's right there. So you it, it's a good place to go and observe some of the subtler things of the natural world um, than you would usually get to see. And yet at the same time, there's a lot of people there who are pretty interesting. Like Donald, Chad, the minimalist sculptor, came to Marfa in the '70s because. He wanted to install his work in an ideal setting, which meant a lot of space and, (laughs) like nobody else's work, to share his spaces with. And he ended up buying an entire cavalry base, basically a whole military base in Marfa with the help of the Dia Foundation. And you know, his work is in these huge artillery sheds, and it's really kind of awe-inspiring and beautiful. And so you can have this, like, high art experience in this remote location, and it brings a lot of kind of pilgrimage-type people there, largely Germans. Um, they're into that stuff. And then there's, there's like, a writing community there. There's a foundation that bought a bunch of houses and lets writers come and stay in them, which I did. And I was there at the same time. My wife and I were both writers. We were both there. And then it was, like, David Foster Wallace was there. So... It was like, you know, that's a fairly awe-inspiring intellect to be around. And if you met David Foster Wallace, like, whatever, in a, in a, in LA, you, you know, you would probably have a slightly, like, standoffish sort of interaction. Whereas Marfa just kind of breaks down all those barriers, and you can actually, like, communicate with people there in a profound way. Sometimes. That said, there are a lot of people who, do you seem to have a proprietary relationship to Marfa? And I think, like, having written a lot about Marfa, I get a lot of just kind of dirty looks along the lines of, like, well, what makes you think you get to write about Marfa? And I'm just like, I don't know, go ahead, you do it too.
0: That's what I like about Los Angeles. A lot of my career is writing about Los Angeles, and nobody asks you that here. Nobody's like, what, what gives you the right? It's any, somebody who got here yesterday can do it. Totally. Somebody who's been here 50 years can do it. It doesn't matter. There's no difference. Well, that's actually like, something I really like about L.A. Um, I don't know that you could say that about New York. I mean, you can write about New York, but I think people... people... get attitudes if you came too recently, though. That's right. That's right. No, there's something... You know, Johnny Come Lately is here. There's just, it's just a void. <laughs> it's the California dream that you're talking about. Yes. It's, it's interesting that this attitude about Marfa and the attitudes that Marfa breeds, there's yeah. this moment toward the end of the book, the book begins and ends with Marfa, where you describe this incident where you and your wife get called provincial by this young gallerist, but you think she means Philistine, and there's this... Why why was this such a big thing? Like, I laughed at it, but I couldn't understand why this became such a wound for everybody involved.
1: I'm sure that it's, like, I'm sure it's not over.
0: What actually happened?
1: Oh, well, all right, what happened was... my wife and I had gone out to dinner and we had we'd been invited out by like an older couple in Marfa who were kind of like people of of like standing and significance in the community and it was like sort of an honor to be invited out to dinner with them um Lon and Dee Dee Taylor and he's like kind of this amazing raconteur he's a historian he's this lovely man and we were kind of nervous. And so we arrived at dinner a little bit late and kind of dressed up maybe a little bit too much. And this is so Marfa. The guy that waited on our table, you just see people in Marfa in many different contexts all the time. Young guy, kind of looked like you actually. Um, and I remember not somehow being like, Oh, hey, Nicholas, thank you for waiting on us, or whatever. Like, you know, I think I just somehow, my social graces weren't, it's actually sort of hard to imagine. I feel like I'm always like saying thank you, and I have pretty good manners. Um, curse a little too much, but other than that. Anyway, next thing I, we knew, we were like, man, what would you guys do to, to this guy and his girlfriend? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, man, she was, she's pissed. She was talking about how rude you were at like that dinner the other night. I was like, what? And, and then like, we had, we had been to this, like, reading that this woman had organized, and she... And they're actually kind of brilliant. I mean, that was the thing that made me... was really agonizing. Is like, it was like, these are like, kind of talented, interesting young people. And I think there was like a little bit of generational politics going on there, too. Where, like, you know, I'm like, just older enough than them that they don't have to, like, really respect me for my age. And yet... And so it's like the perfect age that you can judge. You know, I don't know what that distance ahead is in life that you're like, you think you kind of know everything that they know, even though they're like 10 years older than you. And you can just be like, you can slightly dismiss them out of hand. And I, I assume the difference is just lost years, like yeah. a big lost weekend. Totally. And so, anyway, the, we, like she had organized this reading, and we'd gone to the reading, and, and the reading was like, whatever. But we left early because our kids were getting antsy, and I think we were then viewed as people who just didn't sufficiently appreciate the effort that she was making to bring interesting artistic moments to Marfa um, so we this just like thing happened where it was like suddenly she just like sort of talked a lot of smack about our role in this community. And how maybe we were slightly interlopers. Man, haven't spent enough time there lately and look at those clothes they're wearing. And I think my wife got like in for it for like her shoes. She was wearing some shoes that like the, the girl sort of theorized for like five hundred dollar shoes and Daphne was like, No, I actually got these at a sample sale. And so it's too late for defenses at that point. It's like total minutiae of the most ridiculous level. But like I actually think that like I like looking at that stuff. There's a lot to it. And People can be quite unguarded in ways that can be very revealing around petty issues. And so I was like, I saw it as an opportunity to sort of try to, like, I don't know, make some kind of progress as a human being and understanding something about the world. And, and anyway, I wrote it out as sort of a comical scene. And I'm sure now, I'll just. There will be more to this chapter. I don't know if that answers your question.
0: Right, and it's not just the girl's sister cornering you in an airport. I mean, this is a, an ongoing legacy. It's. It's what happens in. You know, we talk a lot about. I, I talk people in life. And we talk a lot about big ponds and small ponds. Better to be a big fish in a small pond, small fish in a big pond. Marfa sounds like the definition of an interesting small pond, and. It also is an illustration of the problems of the small pond as well.
1: It literally is a very small pond with fish that are actually big fish in other ponds that like shrink themselves down when they're there. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't do that, people are going to get like pissed off at you. Like, who do you think you
0: are? Um, There are those small ponds that that shrink you down to them, but it's... I don't know. I, I think a lot about the inherent appeal of the small pond versus the big pond. I do find at the end of the day, and it's, it's nice, the feeling of being a big fish in a small pond is nice, but at the end of the day, a big pond is a big pond, and a right. big pond is more interesting, probably. Marfa's an interesting, I mean, Marfa has this strange quality of
1: making you always feel small in a very good way, because your, the sky is massive, and the stars are freaking plentiful, and it... it It makes you just reassess your place in, like, the universe (laughs) in in a way that's interesting. Cosmic
0: insignificance type thing.
1: Yeah. And then it's like, I kind of like to play around with, like, really trivial social interactions within that context. You know, that piece. big contrast up above and then down below. That's right. And I guess in that piece that you're talking about, like, that scene kind of butts up against, like, kind of some some nature writing and some other stuff, and I kind of like to, you know, think about all of those things on almost equal footing.
0: <laughs> is San Francisco, the city you grew up in, and, and a city you've written about a lot, is is that a... What size of a pond is that? I think it's small.
1: And I think it's like... It's just... It, I just don't find San Francisco that interesting not anymore or it never was to you that interesting well I think of it as a lifestyle city and any city that places lifestyle possibly at the top of its list just I have a little problem with
0: I mean you're often when, when, when the memoir came out oh the, oh, the glory of it all it's often referred to that two of the main women in the book are socialites. Right. Well, what's a socialite? Fuck knows. <laughs> good question. I, I don't know what a socialite is.
1: I mean, whatever, you can come up with a definition. But I think it's an inherently reductive term, kind of a snipey term, and a way to just to, to discount somebody. A it's not a good thing, is it? No it wants to be that. No, you don't. No. I mean, I guess there are, I think nowadays maybe, I don't know, there are sort of certain people that do, but... But then they also mean, like, reality TV star. Totally. Well, it's the same category of kind of slightly, you know, media whore <laughs> type, type of person, I guess. But I do find San Francisco just a little smug and a little, like... It's just not as interesting as it thinks it is. And, I mean, who am I to say that? I probably haven't lived there... Uh, not probably, I haven't lived there since 1992, and so I'm only somebody who drops in and kind of observes it occasionally. But I think you get a feeling from a place, and I actually, I actually love it too. Um, but there's something about it that is too easy for me, at least right now, um, to really want to live in. Of course, and now it's gotten so expensive that it's like there's a whole level of just challengingness about San Francisco based on economics.
0: Right. And it seemed to be a city completely devoid of children, at least for a while there, and you have kids yourself. It doesn't seem like the ideal place to be <laughs> if you're in a family, right?
1: You know, I don't know where it is a good place to be <laughs> if you're in a family. It's like it's hard having kids and, and like giving them everything they need. Marfa was good in some respects to be with kids because we were there last year. But then it's like the schooling thing is kind of problematic. And in the school in Marfa, up until like a year ago, maybe still had um, corporal punishment as like an option, sort of the
0: ruler across the knuckles or worse
1: definitely, definitely like a stick i can't i can 't say what part of the body was getting hit with the stick, but sure. the, when they tried to actually the school board had a conversation about abolishing it, which they ultimately did, but at first, they failed, and all the teachers, maybe not all, but it's certainly a plurality, said, we need this to keep the kids in line. Yeah. And that's a, you know, that says a lot about a community. And I don't know, like, I often fantasize about just living on some, you know beautiful islands and just eating fruit all the time with my children and, and living some kind of, but I'm like, I don't know where that is. I don't know how you make a living there. And
0: even that, I mean, the feeling of the loneliest man in the world, that would beset you after a little while on that island, I would think, even if your family was there. You know, there
1: was a really great article, I think it was in the Times, about islands and solitary, I think they were all men who have chosen to live on islands by themselves. And they were like... Day yeah, I mean, there were, like, some in the South Pacific. Um, I think there were even a few in Asia that were, like, you know, these men had just gone and, like, been living there for, like, 10, 15 years, and they went and, like, profiled the ball. It was fucking incredible. I really recommend it. Um, it's an interesting personality. I don't know. I mean, loneliness ain't so bad. Um, I think probably, like... All the things we do to avoid it are, are ultimately harder than just feeling it. And children, it's not, it's never really lonely when you're with your children, as long as you're truly engaging with them, which is really challenging, actually. I'm not saying I know how to do that, but like, I've done it and I'm always feeling like, wow, this is really good. I feel really happy to have done that. I mean, I think my parents didn't particularly engage with me, certainly that 's the topic of a lengthy memoir certainly. I wrote
0: it does come up in that book yeah, yeah, it does in the big American ponds, Los Angeles and New York, people keep an eye and obsess over almost where the vitality is you know, New York will say well it hasn 't been in Manhattan for years now exactly. it 's here in Brooklyn, maybe it 's got to Queens in Los Angeles, it seems to move around in an unpredictable way, and no one is really sure where the vitality is but they try to predict it. It's like predicting the stock market and it can right. happen. In the end of in the last Marfa section, in, in More Curious, there's this sense of, is Marfa over? Is it over because people have come here in such numbers? Such numbers. For Marfa standards, you know, Thrasher Magazine, is it past its heyday? Probably, yes. You know, where is the vitality in skating culture? Is it a bunch of 49-year-olds? Is, are they the last outpost of vitality? Is it the kids? What is your interest in sort of where the vitality is and how it moves from sector to sector. I really like
1: that word vitality. It's just so much. A, it's a better word than youth. And because it's not always about youth. Exactly. And yet, I mean, whatever. Like America is obsessed with youth. I mean, that's like what we're into. And but I, but like in an urban context, it's a really interesting question. Obviously, yes. There's no more vitality in Manhattan. Manhattan just feels. Fucking dead. A lot of money there, but A lot men, of money there. not much youth. It's so depressing. Yeah. Um, but Brooklyn is Brooklyn is, I think, still kind of amazing. And but then there are all the kind of moral compromises involved in what gentrification means and driving people out of the place. Um, so wait, am I supposed to tell us where the vitality is right now?
0: No, but I wonder what your interest is in the motion of vitality.
1: Oh, that's all right. I, I do. Well, motion is key, and I think once motion stops there is no there is no static vitality it's a it's a contradiction in terms so it's yeah, always
0: everybody it was i want to go where it's going to be vital forever well no such place no such place but but motion is frightening
1: and we, i think we everybody is kind of pulled between the desire to be stable and the desire to 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 be in motion i think that marfa still has it because of how protected it is by its remoteness and that only certain very determined people are gonna come there and then they're always getting like pushed out too because it's not somewhere that you can stay necessarily all that long. So it has like this churn which I think makes it interesting. Although you know economics are going to maybe screw it up, it's it's getting more and more expensive to live there. I actually, the guy that I took that truck trip with that we were talking about earlier, Michael Meredith, this architect, he wrote me the other day. He's like, hey man, do you want to collaborate on? A, there's this contest to design affordable housing in Marfa, um, and I and Michael's actually like a kind of a difficult person to collaborate with. But I was like, yes, definitely, because it's something that they actually need there. But like f- mostly for for transient people like people who come for a couple of years and and move on marfa and some kind of space crunch i can't imagine i mean you can build it actually yeah i mean there's so many freaking verbo rentals in marfa like people would go there they buy vacation homes and then they rent them out to other vacationers when they're not there and there's like a whole little industry of that and so the actual available housing stock in marfa is getting less and less um so i don't know it's funny how all those things kind of converge i do feel like there are other kind of places i don't know there's there's a certain and maybe it's like it's cyclical you know like i was thinking about like woodstock and upstate new york and how for a while that was like a place of crazy energy and not even just like in the dylan era like in the early 20th century like the black mountain school um and now it, it seems, seems in like, like, cycles. Yeah, and I think people are like kind of going back there now, and like taking up that stuff again. And I like that. I like that sense of continuity. And whatever, I guess history, for lack of a better word, is a nice thing. That that I don't know. I think you can have history and vitality and motion together sometimes for a
0: while. <laughs> and if you stick around long enough, it comes back. If you live long enough. Exactly. Exactly. Finally, as a, as a writer, I'll get, get your perspective on this, as a writer who uses Craigslist a lot, you have an essay about buying expensive, perfectly made fixtures in the various sort of sticks around New York. Why do Craigslist sellers write so weird? Why do they what? <laughs> write so weird. Like, you, tr- you transcribe their texts and their emails to you that are all just askew writing that's psychologically inter- yeah. interesting. Well, it's like a flotsam
1: place. You know, it's just where all the like words and the things drift to. You know, it's almost like that gyre in the Pacific of all the garbage, except like there's like valuable stuff on Craigslist. But and I found that like my the key to my success on Craigslist in scoring stuff was to not Respond in that same idiom to actually write really thoughtful sentences? clear sentences and like sign them with my actual name and come across as a as a person. Um, Rather than it's just a bunch of jumbled, kind of mechanized, weird, meat crap.
0: Word salad, yeah. Total word salad. But it's great. I mean, there's, there's all these, like, found poems and things on Craigslist. Is there some incompatibility between selling a stove on Craigslist and being able to string a sentence together, though?
1: well, dude, it's not like any of these people are writers either. I mean, it was like, suddenly when you met them, you're like, oh, oh, I see. But
0: then when you meet these people, they speak sometimes very well, or like they, they speak in a vivid way. It's not like they're, you expect this a sort of like, Staggering monster based on the way that people write, but then they come out and they're, well, you're a living person who can, who can talk and you can, you can right. speak.
1: Well, people are vivid, but people are actually able to be articulate in surprising ways. Um, I mean, there were compared a lot of. compared th- to their texts, for sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, but that's also where you sense the opportunity. You're like, man, this person is supposed to get freaking rid of this stove, you know, and they're just gonna throw some ridiculous thing. And, you know, they're, they're like, Probably getting a million robo responses, and then they're also like telling their friends, "Man, you know what I mean? Needs a stove." And then if you could like break through all of that, of course, there's like a real deal person and interaction behind it, and that was like kind of thrilling. I loved that. Maybe my favorite interaction I had on Craigslist was when I bought this range hood from this high school kid in New Jersey, who, or he, maybe he was just out of high school. He 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 had this really high-end range hood. And I was like, where do you, why do you have this? And he's like, well, I'm a chef. And I listened to him, and I was like, what do you, really? He's like, well, in a high school, and he's like, and I bought this so that I could practice in my basement, but it would I couldn't get it to fit. And Jersey, like, that part of Jersey is so grim. I mean, it is like a visual salad of just horrible buildings. And like it's zero worse than the worst part of Los Angeles, in a way. The worst part of Los Angeles has got nothing on, like, north-eastern Jersey. It's such a fucking bummer. I don't
0: know.
1: But, you know. That's where you find your smoke hoods. That's where you find stuff. Exactly. That's where you find stuff. <laughs>
0: And this yeah. buying of smoke hoods is only one of the adventures you listeners can read about. And More Curious, the new collection from Sean Wilsey. He's the guest today. He's been the guest today on the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. He's also the author of Oh, the Glory of it All and the co-editor of two books, State by State, A Panoramic Portrait of America and The Thinking Fan's Guide to the World Cup. One of the subjects in More Curious we didn't touch on at all, but, you know, you can't get to everything. Sean, thanks so much.
1: Hey, thank you.
0: This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Colin Marshall, and you can keep up with me at colinmarshall.org and with the LARB at lareviewofbooks.com. Thanks.